This morning we're going to continue in our uh, study. We'll be addressing now the sixth church of the seven churches, the letter to the seven churches in Asia. And this morning we're going to talk about the church at Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a, uh, a Lydian city founded in the third century BC by one of the Pergaminian kings. And it was named after Idolus II, Philadelphus, somewhere between 159 and 138 BC. And who in spite of Roman pressure, he maintained a, a lot of loyalty and love for his brother, Eumenes. And his name, meaning brotherly love, was eventually perpetuated by the city. And, and thus the name of Philadelphia, or what, what we would also know as the city of love. Philadelphia was a city of, uh, of commerce and importance, commercial importance. It was located at the gateway to the high central plateau of the Roman province in Asia Minor. It's located about 80 miles east of Smyrna, and you can again see all the various churches that we are referring to. They're on the Aegean coast in western Turkey. And in its early days, it was an important junction of one of the greatest highways uh, in the world, which led the east to the west, linking Europe to Asia, and, uh, and terminating there again at the, uh, Smyrna and some of the diagonal routes that existed were important for that commerce. So it was a key city to the east-west uh, for trade and, and, and as commerce uh, was created. Philadelphia was founded for the special purpose um, and with actually a special intention. It was situated where the borders of Mysia and Lydia uh, and Phrygia were met and it was a border town, but also it had some uh, kind of barbarian tribes on the outside and so uh, it was founded with a deliberate intention of being that of, of a missionary of, of Greek culture, a uh, missionary city for Greek culture and the Greek language and to the, to the Lydians and, and beyond. And it worked out so well, they say, that eventually by uh, early A.D. Uh, 19 or so, the, the Lydians had forgotten their own language. <laughs> the Lydian language, they'd become so uh, in, entrenched in the Greek. But King Gaius, uh, he designed Philadelphia again for this commerce to be a, uh, a missionary city, and that with its Greek language and civilization, it would be spread to Asia Minor and beyond. And as such, the city of, of the Greek culture uh, became very refined. Uh, the old city sometimes bore the little Athens because of the magnificence of its temples and other public buildings. It was rich in, in um, mineral hot springs. And so uh, Philadelphia was a health spa for tourists who came for its medicinal waters. It was also known for its beautiful buildings um, and architecture. It was, the city was backed by volcanic cliffs, and, through the, and, and though the land was rich and fertile uh, from the uh, volcanic residue, it did have, it did have the presence of, of uh, uh, volcanoes and, and earthquakes. It was known as a land of uh, rich in grapes and, and wine. In fact, it uh, housed the god of, the god of, uh, of wine, uh, Dinosaurus, I believe. It was a dangerous place due to um, the fact that it was subject to volcano eruptions and earthquakes. It experienced a lot of earthquakes in the region, and according to his, history, the city was in constant danger of earthquakes. Um, and experienced shocks on a regular basis. And, and because of this, uh, a lot of, of its inhabitants would live outside of the town in huts and, and they would com come back into the city uh, for commerce. It had quakes enough over time that eventually uh, the city was destroyed mostly but, and eventually became part of a, of a Roman empire. 
The city was rebuilt by um, Roman Emperor Tiberius and became a center of early Christianity. And in gratitude, they say the Philadelphians renamed uh, the town Neo Caesarea, the new, uh, the new city of Caesar, but later it reverted back, back to its original name. Um, the city was often shaken again by, by earthquakes, and due to that, the citizens were heavily taxed in, in its attempts to rebuild, and, and poverty eventually prevailed. From ancient resources and all that, Philadelphia was known for housing a number of temples, and, and much of that, again, was destroyed, as you've seen, through the earthquakes. And little remains today from, uh, from ancient Philadelphia. It was a Roman town until uh, 1379 AD, and it eventually fell into the hands of uh, the Turks, and uh, through, per, through a lot of uh, persistent uh, measures, and then uh, modern Turkey, the city of Ali Shehar, the city of God, stands on the site of the old city of Philadelphia. You see pictures of sarcophagus and, and various remains, preserved arches, and various things that have survived. Uh, here you see a broken archway now with a mosque in the background. Um, but it's believed that these pillars here supported a large church dome in ancient Philadelphia. Kind of a little bit of a history in, in uh, the Byzantine era uh, here, which I really uh, enjoy looking back at some of these images that we've been able to see through these studies. The Byzantine architecture would have had very, very large pillars, as you see here. There would have been often four of them, and it would have encompassed been the basis for a dome. Uh, at each one of those. And so the dome, because of, of a compression ring, would have been able to apply equilateral forces to each one of those domes, and those would have had archways, and, and that would have been prominent throughout a lot of the Byzantine architecture. Obviously, even still then, those domes eventually failed due, due to the earthquakes, but you can look at the size of the pillars that uh, I'm sure they were aware of needing to structure the buildings. So there's not much to see from the early days of the city except just some ruins of city walls uh, composed of just rough stone blocks, but you can see some of the workmanship and the basilica. You know, I, I look today and I think, you know, we look at buildings being built and we see big tower cranes and <laughs> it's just amazing to think that how the buildings were built, probably lives were lost in building some of these massive temples uh, and structures over time. But uh, now it's just crumbling Byzantine walls that are blended into the cityscape. But we do see the workmanship of a lot of the arches and materials used uh, for, for that Byzant Byzantine period. And here are just a couple of uh, pillars of what they believe was St. John's Church. Here you just find uh, some of the more recent photos of what now would be uh, the Turkish city of al -Sahar. So when established until mid-100 uh, BC, the city of Philadelphia was actually one of the newest and youngest churches uh, that Jesus addressed. Uh, in Revelation. Philadelphia and, Smyr and, and Smyrna were the only two churches about which nothing negative was said uh, by John. It was one of two churches of the seven that was, was, I guess, viewed favorably and had the longest duration of prosperity as a Christian city of all the churches. <clears throat> so let's begin our lesson and we'll, we'll uh, begin in Revelation 3. We pick up in the seventh verse. And it says, Until the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. 
I know your works, and see I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So the letter begins here with, with Christ identifying himself as the holy and true one. And we see that reference all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, we see in Isaiah 40, 25, to whom then you will like me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. So we see that's a title uh, that's given often to God or to Christ. And he is true in the sense he is, he is faithful and trustworthy. He's totally set apart from sin and uh, in his absolute righteousness. That's what we can see when he says about the, the uh, true and holy. The Greek word uh, true, alikinus, uh, means real, genuine, ideal. It would oppose anything false. So when he talks about being true, he's, he's describing to them, I'm, I'm the real one. I am the genuine one um, and oppose anything that's false. It also depicts him similarly in contrast to all the deceptions of the world uh, that we know that we see is described in, in John 14, 6, where it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And of course, whenever time I read this scripture, I always think, you know, that's, that's just about as clear as it gets as Christians when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And sometimes we let life get in our way and we need to it, this verse can be a reminder anytime we have needs anytime we have problems that Jesus is the answer he is the sufficiency because of his life that he gives to us in another challenge at at this time the, the church considered itself the heir of the of the new Israel it had accepted Jesus as its Lord the Messiah spoken of in Hebrews the church saw itself as composed as of, of the spiritual Jews who had received the circumcision through the Holy Spirit. And so this naturally created a rift between the traditional Jews and, and those, the non-Christian Jews and, and then the Christians. You see, the Jews felt like they had an open door. They had the open door to God's presence and not these Christians. We can read of that in Romans 2, 28 uh, and 29. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is a circumcision that is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is, inward, is, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So as we read through this, what we see is John's message was to assure those in the church that they were indeed the heirs to salvation. He goes on to further clarify this as he wrote that Christ is the one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. What do you think this means? What was the key that unlocked a door that could not be shut? Well, Isaiah 22 gives us a, a reference back in, in the uh, prophecies. Isaiah reads, uh, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open, and no one shall shut. And he shall shut, and no one shall open. Now, we won't have time to go back into this story, but um, he, he was spoke, speaking to Elikim, and he said this Elikim would, be, he would be, have this key placed on his shoulder, and he would become a gatekeeper 
with the power to control entry into the royal kingdom. And as the king's steward, he would decide who could or could not have access to the king. So I thought the story, as the king, uh, the story serves as a prophecy of, of the Messiah, suggesting that Christ is the only one who can give us the great access to, to God and grant access to God. Christ has given the Christians here at Philadelphia access to God, and he says no one can shut it. No one can deprive you of this. So here we see John using this, this same metaphor to give the church at Philadelphia and, and thus all Christians the, the fact that Christ holds the way. He holds the key. He opens the door for you, for the church, for his royal household, and allows us, the church, to come into the presence of God. And in doing so, he grants us access to the kingdom and salvation. <clears throat> Revelations 1.18 says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, and I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. You know, the keys also speak of Christ's power to give salvation and victory over death and over Satan's world. You know, sometimes we can feel bound up by this world, bound up by, by sin, but we can remember through this reminder that Jesus holds the key to freedom. And he's opened that door for us that no one can shut, including Satan. What a great promise and what a great reminder it is that, that he holds the key to life. And he opens this door uh, for us to freely enter into. We'll look at the word when he says, <clears throat> See, I have set before you an open door. When you look at the word set, and some, some uh, uh, translations we use the word put, I have put before you a door. If you look at this particular word in Greek, it means I, I give to bestow, supply, deliver, commit. So when you think about and just translate those words, I have given you an open door. I have supplied or I've delivered to you this door. I've committed this door to you. I have entrusted. Think about that word. I have entrusted an, an open door for you. You know, when we're giving keys to a door, it's like a sense of stewardship, right? When you buy a house and you're given the keys, you have a sense of pride. Those are your keys to your house. No, it, it controls who comes and goes. Same with your office. When you give them the keys, you, you allow only so many people to have keys to your office. And so think about that sense of stewardship when he talks about the keys and, and this door that, that uh, we're in control of. The sovereignty uh, through the leading of, of the Lord, the one who opens and closes the door. You know, potentially I also see another analogy here, a lesson that maybe could be applied here. It can be an open door sometimes for us to grab the opportunities when they come. But not push and get frustrated when the Lord isn't maybe opening the doors that we think he should open in our life. But we see that Philadelphia, because, it's, because we see in its history that it was a missionary church, I believe you could also see some, some concepts established here that God was opening the door to spread the gospel. So the analogy for us today would be we need to look 
for doors that are open to us and God to spread the gospel. You know, our churches do a lot of work. We do a lot of work in India and Nigeria and Belize and many other areas. But how often are we looking for doors to evangelize, opening for doors of opportunity? Again, he is entrusting us with this open door. So as a church, we need to be mindful of the opportunities that, that uh, not only he's blessed us with, but he's also given us to, to be ready and to be looking for the, that open door. <laughs> One of the other things we see here is he says, for you have little strength, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So the church here appeared to have little strength. I don't think he's referring to a spiritual weakness. I, th I think if you put it in the context, it may be that of size. Uh, you know, we're a relatively small church here in this town compared to many other churches. They, he says, you have little strength, uh, maybe even because of its uh, ability to have a major influence in the community, to the, what they may have felt they could have as an impact. He says, so hey, they have little strength, but you've kept my word and have not denied my name. And so Jesus' words were here would encourage them and, and commend them and um, that they had kept his word and their faith had not denied his name. And their faith had not denied his name. First Corinthians 16 and 9. We see a reference to this. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So sometimes when we have that door, and we picture there's an open door, sometimes behind that door is an adversary. You ever been afraid of opening a door? Anytime in, when you think you've gone through an old spooky house, you've gone into some old building, you're, you almost are afraid to open that door and see what's behind it. Sometimes I think we live in fear of of what's behind that door if we open it. But the idea is here behind it is that they've not denied his name. My name is not only that they've expressed their allegiance to Jesus, but they've lived in a way that was faithful to the name and to the character of Jesus. So overall here we see in these verses that Jesus is, is he's commending the church in Philadelphia for their faithfulness with opportunities that have been given to them and for their spiritual competence and, and the faithful in Jesus through keeping his word, the reliance on God. Though they may have been small, though they, as he says, so they had little strength, they were staying strong and true to his word. We read and uh, go on and read in verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. You see, the Jews of Philadelphia who were persecuting and intimidating the Christians were called the synagogue of Satan. The same reference we saw actually back in, in the previous chapter in verse 9 uh, in the church of Smyrna. You know, the book of Revelation is, has, has a purpose of providing much-needed uh, encouragement and comfort during these times. It shows the church that it's not some conquering body, but, but a group of people often fighting for their own very life in a hostile setting. 
And sometimes we lose pictures of that in today's world. These churches were not immune to this. They were often intimidated by outsiders like those that he's referring to that claim to be Jews but are not. They're liars. They will ultimately have to acknowledge that Christ loves his church. He says, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. A reference here that we can pull into this is John 8, 41, you do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, we were not born of fornication, we have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. He is speaking to the Jewish people here and, and telling, giving him these words that they are not hearing his words. Matthew 21, verse 44, 43 again says, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And here again we see a reference to what is happening with the, with the new church. <clears throat> and he says they will eventually acknowledge and thus bow down to their Savior and to recognize that Christ loves the church. He promises that he will vindicate his people and make sure that their persecutions, persecutors recognize they are wrong and that Jesus and his followers are right. We continue on in verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. You know, many confuse this language right here with that as referring to the time of tribulation. It's another one of those reference points on the world before God's kingdom is established. Well, we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, dwelling on that particular uh, belief there, but, but for the sake of time, um, we will we'll pass that. But, but what we do know is he is saying the church will suffer persecution. And certainly it seems we're became, becoming increasingly aware of this even today, even more in our recent years and months. We feel this sense of persecution upon the church, some of our freedoms and liberties as Christians as we know it being challenged. You know, I think sometimes persecution is misunderstood. I don't believe persecution means we just have to lay down and take it. I don't think persecution means we go stick our head in the sand. 
We need to take a stand for our beliefs. We can do so civilly. We do so with, because of our faith, because of our strength in our faith and our conviction in our faith. Too often we take the sense that, well, we can just be the silent majority. I think there's a time coming where we need to be able to, to take an open stance and challenge those that would try to persecute us or the church. And certainly we've seen that becoming more prevalent in the past years. <clears throat> he, he's admonishing the church here uh, in, these, in these verses. And we see some other references to that, Hebrews 10, 36. He says, For if you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You know what I see here is just let patience have its perfect work. We have need of patience as Christians that after we've done the will of God, we can receive his promise. Matthew 10, verse 22 says, And you will be hated for all, by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Acts 14, 22, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. We know as Christians there's, there's been persecutions throughout, throughout the history. And we may be in a time where we uh, may receive more. But we need to stand true and be patient and continue on. I think that's the admonishment he's given to this, to this church here, that they have done well, continue to remain faithful, to keep the word, to rely on God. You know, as we saw earlier with the church in Smyrna, it would receive the crown of life. Smyrna was to receive the crown of life, he said. The church of Philadelphia was told to not let any person take its crown. You know, in both cases, the, the word is Stephanos or Stephanus, which refers to the wreath of victory uh, that was awarded to the winners of, of athletic contests and and uh, this, this city was famous for its athletic games and festivals. So this reference would have been a very meaningful to the word here, when, uh, to the church here, when he used the words upon us about, don't let them take your crown of, uh, of, uh, crown of victory. <clears throat> he said these things can and must continue among the church in Philadelphia, but it will only happen if they hold fast to what they have. He says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have. Oops, I'm sorry. I'm went forward there. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. You see, the church here in Philadelphia must remember that he, he was telling them, hey, Jesus is coming quickly. They must prepare for his coming. The expression quickly, I think, sometimes means uh, to us sudden or unexpected. It, it, it should be sudden or unexpected. It doesn't necessarily mean immediate, but that it would be sudden and, une and unexpected. And that, that's something we need to, again, remember today, that we need to hold fast uh, to what we have. But he says he's coming again. 
told the church of Philadelphia not to depart from its solid foundation that we see described here. Hold to its faith in God's words. So these things can and must continue in the church there in Philadelphia is what he is telling them. But it will only happen if they hold fast to what they have. That no one may take their crown. I think the idea here is when you see that, that no one may take your crown, it's not that someone would come and steal your crown. It's, it's more that your crown might be given to another. You know, this is not a crown of royalty or a crown that's given by birth. We saw the funeral uh, from the prince in England today or, or, or uh, Britain yesterday. You know, that, that crown was given to him roughly by birth or by statue, uh, stature, and, and that's not what kind of crown we're talking about. But he said this is a crown of victory. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Run in such a way that you may obtain that crown of victory. Jesus is encouraging his saints here that finish their course with victory. Play the second half as strong as you played the first half. And don't give up. You know, I, I think of an analogy that with all our kids, I think, ended up in track somehow. I think you had to take that in, uh, in middle school. And although none of them stayed with track, I think Jessica did uh, pole vaulting. But uh, I can't remember what Rachel did. But I think she was in uh, one of the running events. But I know Valerie was involved in track during her middle school years. And I thought, what is a five foot four kid going to do? She's going to get whooped <laughs> in track. Well, it wasn't really a good event for her, but eventually they put her in, uh, uh, she decided to go for the mile race. I remember the first time we attended one of her races. It's always 16 runners in the race. And I remember when they took off that first lap, I was just going, wow, this is exactly what I expected. This is not her sport. As, as, she, as they took off, she kind of hung with the group for the, for the first part of the, uh, the first lap of the four laps. And as she came down through the, the first lap, she was beginning to, to, to make some significant fallback. She was at least in the back half of the group. And I thought, hey, she just is too tiny. She's got little legs. She can't keep up with these tall girls that have long strides. They continued on into the second lap. Clearly, by the end of the second lap, she had fallen back further. Not maybe ever to the very back of the pack, but she had fallen back. And I, not, not that I was embarrassed, but she just almost felt sorry for her. I was like, wow, I'm sorry that she's having to do this sport. The third lap, she came, they come around. She continued. Strong, beginning to make a little bit of headway, making herself look like she wasn't going to come in last. <laughs> she was hanging with the group in the third, but she was still a ways back. <coughs> On the fourth lap, she developed a, a scenario we, we finally realized that about 
halfway through the fourth, about, I guess really as she came into the fourth lap, she would begin to pick up speed. Significant speed such that she would begin to, to move up into that first half of the group. As she was about halfway through the final lap, that's when she kicked it in. She, she made what they call her, her step and her move, and she made the kick, and she would eventually bypass all those. She would cause the bigger runners to make their kick too early, such that by the time they crossed the finish line, I think she, if I'm not mistaken, I think she only lost a couple of races in her, her little two-year career there. I was shocked and amazed at what I saw. And, not, and I'm not saying that to talk about her winning because that was clearly not her sport. It was a, the gift that she had was understanding I'm in here for the endurance. <laughs> and she saw these big girls, she had practiced long enough, she had seen a lot of these girls can't make the full four, four laps at the speed they think they can and they were young enough, they just didn't understand that. They'd take off and they had vigor and speed and they would run. She just held back, she endured. Now we'll say, I don't also remember many races that she normally went off to the side or into the inside field and, and usually if you know anything about Valerie, she has a pretty weak stomach and she would usually empty part of her stomach after every race. It was just, she had given it all. She had endured. She had completed the race. She had completed it with patience. I, I, I've often thought about that analogy because every time I watched her, I, I was still kind of stunned of, of what she was doing and that no one was picking up on, on that. But it was all about to her, her endurance and test and she would reserve her energy to the last, uh, to the last lap. So I think that's the way we need to look at our lives. We need to run with that endurance. We need to run with patience. We need to run in such a way that we don't run and then give up that crown because we because we fail at the end. Never forget that the man most likely to steal your crown is yourself. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it, for out of it spring the issues of life. Anyone's going to lose the crown, it's probably going to be because of yourself. Don't give your crown away. We've been given that open door, we've been given that crown, and as he's encouraging the church at Philadelphia, run such that you are able to continue to, to receive that crown. You're in no greater danger from anyone or anything than yourself. He goes on to promise that he would make them pillars representing stability, and we saw pictures of, of those in God's temple, and that, that they would never leave God's presence, an assurance of him being forever with them in eternity. And Christ also has promised to write their names of the believers, the name of God, the name of the new Jerusalem, Christ's new name for the believer. He says, I will do this for you. I'll, I'll, I'll place it on these pillars. You see, the ancient city, again, had suffered from frequent earthquakes. And when a building collapsed in an earthquake, often all that remained were those huge pillars. And Jesus offers us this same strength. To remain standing where everything around our life seems to be going bad or crumbling, 
we can remain strong in our faith and remember that we can be a pillar, the pillar that would hold up these buildings. The only thing supporting the pillar is the foundation. They understood that even when they built these buildings. True pillars in the church support the church and they look to Jesus as their foundation. These ancient pillars would have had names inscribed on them. Uh, and I, I saw various pictures that, that had them, these names inscribed. They would have been names of recognition and honor. So Christ was using, again, this as a metaphor. So this would signify the prominence and honor given to the victors. And finally, he closes with the usual charge and the admonition to hear this message and take it to heart. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear this message. Take it to heart. The promise is, is simple. For all who hear, for all who believe, for all obey, keep my word. You've done well. You've not denied my name. Keep doing the things that you're doing. And that's our encouragement today is the promise is simple. To hear and believe and obey. These promises apply to us just as they did thousands of years ago with the early church and throughout history. I hope that something I've said this morning uh, has encouraged you and, and if it, we never want to close a service without offering the services of the church, if there is any way that we can help you, pre uh, we ask you to uh, come forward as we sing and stand.